I am. Ladies and gentlemen, veterans of all ages, those in, still in the military, welcome to another edition of Warrior Connection. Hey, the 4th of July has came and went. We had a nice parade here at the 4th of July in Rantoul, Illinois. The veterans were leading the parade, you know, right behind the color guard. We had a nice float with veterans of all ages. I guess they were from Korea War down to the current time, veterans on the float with us. But it was an extremely hot day. Well, ladies and gentlemen, one thing that we do know that happened during Operation Desert Storm, and especially during Vietnam, that pesticides, Agent Orange, and all of these things got us horribly. Not only did they get all of us in the military, they did what they've done to the families of our farm workers, the families of our farmers, agricultural workers. It's beyond imagination, and I don't think people want to talk about it. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got the expert today to talk about it. Professor Dr. Ann Lopez, she's a professor out at the University of California. She's the director of the Center for Farm Worker Families, an expert in environmental science, environmental engineering, and pesticides. Ann, welcome to Warrior Connection, my love. Thank you so much. I um, I think that uh, your your accolades probably don't fit entirely. I do lecture up at... Um, UC Santa Cruz, but um, all my time is taken working with farm workers as director of Center for Farm Worker Families. Well, you know, you, you, you and I extended a lot of uh, environmental lesson plans going back many, many years when I was a young professor and you were teaching me. So uh, it's one of the things that go along. Pesticides. Why do people want to ignore the health and environmental effects of pesticides? And I mean, the farm workers, our whole nation, our food crop is dependent upon the farm workers that harvest the crops out there. And then you've got the families are affected by pesticides. And then you've got all these people that run around, you know, like the orphan man. He comes under your kitchen sink and he's dressed like he's going to a wedding instead of dealing with pesticides. What is happening, Ann? Well, I I think there's a couple of things. Number one, I view, I think the the larger view is that um, farm workers are expendable. Uh, They have an average life expectancy of only 49 years. They come across the border and uh, risk their lives getting across the border. And I should note just as uh, a side that most of them came here and continue to come here because NAFTA devastated their rural economy in Mexico. Most of them don't want to be here. And uh, in order to survive, they come here. Uh, They risk their lives. Uh, I view it as once they enter into the United States, they get on a conveyor belt and they're overworked, they live in poverty, they have a poor diet, they uh, get diabetes and cholesterol, uh, high cholesterol at horrible rates. Um, They live in very crowded conditions. I have uh, several families, 16 people living in less than 1,000 square feet uh, with one bathroom. Uh, They have no medical insurance. And uh, the longer they're in California, the, the uh, sicker they get. In fact, um, there's the California Institute of Rural Studies 
Rick Mines says that they'd actually be better off staying in Mexico and starving than com- coming here because they get so sick and die so young. So I think they're expend- they're viewed as an expendable uh, slavery force. Uh, it's not a kind of slavery where uh, a white person owns black bodies like we had in the South, but it's one that's maintained by rules, regulations, laws, and policies that keep them trapped and from which they and their children cannot escape. Uh, I think it's very immoral myself. Um, So there's that aspect of it. Then the other aspect of it is that there is a widespread belief system, in spite of the data, that uh, we have to have an industrial food system uh, in order to produce enough food to feed everybody on the planet. And, of course, industrial food systems are dependent on acres and acres of monocultures, which can only be maintained with pesticides and agrochemicals. Uh, In fact, there are some wonderful studies that show that if we overnight shifted to organic agroecological production, even regenerative production, uh, we could feed everybody on the planet. So um, until that realization becomes widespread in the population, I think we're going to be stuck with this, uh, you know, with this agricultural system that's dysfunctional. It's a failed system. Nobody wins, just like you're saying. Pesticides are everywhere. People are getting sick. Farm workers die young, et cetera. I, I know the, the horror. When I was a young professor, first starting to teach environmental science, and you and I first started working together so many years ago, I mean, you were basing everything on the tribal American, the ancient tribal rights, and protecting the environment where the butterfly that flaps its wings on the West Coast affects the, our life and our things on the East Coast of the United States. Do people truly understand the extent and how our farm system works? I mean, we've got, uh, the I guess call them migrant workers that come in here and do detasseling now for the corn crops. And uh, as you said, they don't exactly look the healthiest. I'm not sure where they're living or how they're living by. But they come in in mass and they get this and they move on to the next thing. Then they move on to the next thing. There's a continuous traveling. And then there's no stabilized housing form or medical care or schools, is there? No. I mean, at least in California, there, uh, there isn't. Now, there, there, is, um, there are farm workers who stay here year-round and try to survive. The problem is on the West Coast now, rents are so high that they can hardly make it. And we actually had starvation going on in the Oaxacan farm worker community last um, winter because of the heavy rains. There wasn't any work. And uh, I visited homes and saw this, and I was just appalled. I thought, we're going to have, you know, children dying. It's going to be in the newspapers. And uh, I asked them why they didn't go to the food bank, and they told me they're afraid of being deported. So uh, we worked out a situation where the food bank actually went to them in an undisclosed 
location where they felt safe and we averted a, a tragedy. But you're right. I mean, their lives are so tenuous. They live on the edge day by day, hoping to survive. And um, they're eventually used up. When they die at age 49, they're thrown away and new ones come in from Mexico. It's a constant conveyor belt system. Well, you and I are, you know, both right there at 20 years as Ray Cla- Ray is, or other co-hosts, we're, you know, at 20 years beyond that. How how much are agricultural is dependent on, first off, the farm workers, and then the next thing, I guess we need to have a better description of pesticides, because as you and I, and I think Ray understands, pesticides are not only the things that kill the bugs, but pesticides are the same things that make the crops grow. So I guess right. we need to explain, first off, how how much of our agriculture depends on these farm workers. I mean, is that where our stuff is coming from? And then what are these actual pesticides that, and how are they used that have such... I mean, we think that they're making our crops better, but day in and day out we're finding out this better living through chemistry is killing us. That's right. That's right. And I have some... Uh some specific examples of that, which are absolutely horrendous. I just, I'm so upset about it. But um, uh, the the whole thing, farm, I mean, the the entire industrial farming system is dependent in one way or another on farm workers. Now, there are some crops, um, I'm told, in the Midwest, for instance, where you guys live, or, you know, the East Coast, that are not dependent and can be machine harvested. I know that they came up with, I think, a genetically modified tomato that uh, was so uniform that machines could go through and harvest them. But um, those people didn't, I think it was called a flavor saver years ago, and people didn't like, like them, so they abandoned that. Uh, but all of the crops that require hand-picking, especially like delicate crops like strawberries, blackberries, straw, um, and um, raspberries uh, on the West Coast here, all of those require just huge crews of farm workers. In fact, California has somewhere between 500,000 and 800,000 farm workers, and up to a million, actually, and there's two million in the entire country. So this state produces a huge amount of food for the rest of the country, and to do that, it's done mostly with industrial agriculture, requires many, many crews of farm workers to get the work done the way it's set up. I think one thing people don't understand here, where I live, we raise corn and soybeans, okay? And obviously, I mean, I just harbored my fresh peaches the last two days. I got peaches all over the house right now. And uh, but the peach crop was a failure. But that peach crop, just on our tree, it was you know intensive couple hours of work for myself and you know another family member just to harvest the small peaches that we had on one tree. And again, it's dangerous. So I mean, it's not something one person wants to do. And the reason I could have done it myself, but we know we start climbing or crawling or reaching. The probability of accidents is staggering. Uh, oh, yeah. You see a lot of accidents with the farm workers all the time during, I mean, they got to be using knives and everything, so they're harvesting, they're climbing, they're crawling. What else is happening to them? 
Well, there's this, the agriculture is the second most dangerous um, occupation, at least in California, right after construction, and for the very reasons that you're talking about. And then, of course, they're the most that uh, the farm workers are the most exposed population to pesticides and agrochemicals. And already, we've just started the fumigation um, season, and already 30 farm workers have been uh, are have been uh, basically laid in the field because they were uh, so heavily intoxicated and taken to hospitals. So this is just the beginning of the season for fum- fumigation. And uh, we are partnered with Californians for Pesticide Reform, and we just shudder about what might happen for the rest of the season, how many are going to be affected, and what, what are the, going to be the chronic effects. I mean, we know the acute effects, but the chronic effects, of this kind of intense exposure. Well, a little and dab will do you. I guess maybe think we're trying to understand. First off, you've got wet application of a pesticide. This is where you have a carrier like water or some other fluid that the pesticide can be dissolved into, and then that can be sprayed on. And then you have a, a dry pesticide application. Again, that's primarily used on tomatoes. I know in our area it is. And then, as you just mentioned, you have fumigation. Now, fumigation is where they set up a large pot or a large instrument, and they're literally spraying the whole region, correct? Well, um, they, they do. They supposedly have machines that try to keep it more localized. But if it's drift-prone, uh, it will vaporize. And we have, right now, let me tell you, we have the worst, example of environmental racism I have ever studied, Doug. It is so bad in the Salinas Valley. And if you'd like me to explain it, I'm happy to do so. <laughs> hey, go ahead, Ann. I'm learning from you, and that's what this is about, learning the effects of pesticides, not only on the farm workers, but then we got to go into the children. Oh, well, the children are the ones that really have it the worst. But yeah, I mean, that's what the Salinas Valley situation is about. The Chamacos, and I forgot what the acronym stands for, uh, scientists at UC Berkeley studied the mothers and children of the Salinas Valley for 17 years. They just published their paper at um, year 18, and they've made a direct correlation between the amount of organophosphate pesticides a pregnant woman is exposed to and the loss of IQ of her fetus by the time it's age seven. And it turns out that for every 522 pounds of organophosphate pesticide uh, a pregnant woman is exposed to during her pregnancy within one kilometer of where it's sprayed, by the time her fetus reaches age seven, it will have lost 2.2 points of IQ. And some of the women in the Salinas Valley are exposed to thousands of pounds of, of organophosphate. Now, one of the worst organophosphates for children is chlorpyrifos. And chlorpyrifos interferes with brain development 
and also spinal cord development. It's a neurotoxin, an insecticide. So what, what do we do? We take these children who are from the Salinas Valley who are already intellectually compromised from their mothers being exposed during pregnancy. We send them to nearby schools. Chlorpyrifos is sprayed on the nearby fields. And uh, again, it's drift prone. It goes into the classrooms and affects the development of their brains and spinal cords. And so uh, over time then, intellectually, they become less and less proficient, thus guaranteeing the next generation of farm workers. I think about 15 years ago when you and I met and I started learning from you, we were seeing the horrific effects. We'd already seen it, the horrific effects of Agent Orange, which is 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T, and all that mm-hmm. mixed together or separate on the U.S. military from Vietnam and their children. And then we started seeing it from Desert Storm. And then you and I got involved in working together. It was about 15 years ago now. I know it's all blurred together. And we were seeing all the veterans coming back with learning disabilities, memory problems. I mean, as you know, I've got severe oh. memory problems. We've ran into that individually. But then all of a sudden this is starting to come together. Now, the other thing, too, that I think, and maybe you can explain this to us a little bit better, Ann, this is not only a direct exposure, but we're seeing genetic modifications in the RNA and DNA would then lead to long-term changes, aren't we, from pesticides? Well, um, what, uh, with, I'm not, I don't know about those studies, to be honest with you, other than, of course, genetically modified foods. And, you know, they're, they're engineered to be Roundup ready and all of that. But I, I don't know if those studies have been done. I do know that at UC Berkeley, they found that within a 10-year period, I think it was from 1990 to 2000, the autism rate in California skyrocketed. And uh, they don't... Uh, they don't pin it down specifically to pesticides. However, if you're, if you're u- widely using insecticides that damage and interfere with the normal development of people's brains, I mean, it, <laughs> it doesn't take a rocket scientist, as they say, to figure that a lot of these learning disabilities autism, attention deficit disorders, all these things that I never recall anybody having when I was a kid uh, would be impacted. I mean, people would be impacted. And one of the things I think uh, I should mention, too, that I think is one of the most tragic is that um, at Stanford University and the Pediatric Oncology Ward, approximately one-half of the children there are from the Salinas Valley. Isn't that something? Yeah, it, it just scares me because we not only have all the pesticides and all this stuff, but then we have all the organic compounds and all the biological materials and all these organic compounds that are used all over. We've got the outgassing of all the housing structural materials and structural, you know, structural components in the house, Right. Tears zapping everybody. I know had one of my own cousins here 
and this goes back into and I now I got your paper here, Ann, on Roundup. Uh, oh. Round, Roundup is like you can buy Roundup any place it's used all over. And my own cousin was out there spraying the dandelions on the back of his four, four-wheeler. Oh, goodness. And that Roundup oh. went right across the blood-brain barrier, and six months later he died of brain cancer. Well, I'm not surprised. In fact, there is a, a, a lawsuit, a class-action lawsuit against Monsanto. 800 people bringing this lawsuit claiming that their cancers were caused by using glyphosate or Roundup. And it's interesting, Doug, to me, the connection between the pharmaceutical industries and the agrochemical industries, because my neighbor uh, came down with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is one of the most common cancers resulting from exposure to Roundup or glyphosate. And it cost his insurance company $759,000 in chemotherapy to put his case in remission. Well, I mean, that's quite a profit, you know. So one, one corporation creates the cancer, and the other one comes up with a cure, all at tremendous profit on both sides. Isn't it wonderful? And this is Ray, and I wanted to ask you a question, too, and it's, it's nice to hear your voice again. You're, you're so informative, it's unbelievable. But uh, <laughs> I hear people always talking about this, about the weather right now. It seems as though, I mean, we've always had you know hot weather in the summertime, but it seems so much more intense now than it used to. It's almost like being under a magnifying glass. And right. I don't know if it's global warming or it's a depletion of the uh, ozone or whatever it is. But does that add to the complications that you're talking about in these farm workers? And there's two, there's a couple things that's always bothered me really bad. There are terms, and one is expendable, and one is acceptable losses. And I, I, those things really drive me up the wall because I'm a veteran like you guys, and and I've seen that and I've heard that so often. But it's unbelievable what we do to humanity for our own good, you know. And we sacrifice the lives of a lot of people. So. Let me know, uh, just tell me what you think about what I just said. Well, um, there's, I, there, I have about five thoughts about it, actually. But one is, I mean, there's a basic ecological principle that uh, Doug can tell you more about than I can, uh, about how everything is connected. And you can't change one thing without altering the system. Um, that goes without saying. And so to continue pumping uh, carbon dioxide, methane, and all of these gases, nitrous oxides, into the atmosphere, there's going to be consequences. And I had the exact same experience you're describing of heat so intense. It was like being under a magnifying glass. When I went down to Cuquillo, Jalisco, just a month ago, um, the farmers were really b- bewildered because they usually plant their crops in May and wait for the rains. There was no rain, and everything was dry. It was like a desert. And this is high mountains. I mean, usually they have beautiful oak, pine forests everywhere, and you see plots of corn growing everywhere, and there was nothing. And the heat was unbelievable. I've been going there for 20 years, and I've never felt like it was that intense or that hot. So, um, I, yes, the climate is changing, 
And it's very worrisome to me that we've got so much denial about the climate in people who are supposed to be leaders of our country. I mean, we need to be at the forefront of rectifying this. There are solutions, and we're not, we're not, um, but people would rather be in denial and just uh, go that route. So that's one. And then the other thing that came to mind, I, I went on a birding trip in February to Cuba. And the birds, of course, are just magnificent. But one of the things that really struck me about Cuba is that people and the environment are what are important there. And it's manifested everywhere in the society. It was almost shocking to me, uh, quite frankly. I mean, in fact, when I got... <laughs> got in the taxi to go to the hotel, the taxi driver was asking why we have homeless in the United States. And I said, well, don't you have homeless here? No, everybody has a place to live. And I said, well, how about food? Do you have any hunger? No, everybody gets an allotment every month and everybody has food. And um, so everyone has their basic needs met, even though the country's very poor. So they have food, they've got shelter. You can go into any doctor's office, even if you're not from the country, and get the treatment you need. And the universities there will support a student in earning two upper division degrees. And, you know, it was just, it was amazing. There was a kind of calm there that I have not felt here. Um, so uh, I just I'm, I just question uh, whether or not we need uh, a different economy, one that supports humans and the environment. In Cuba, they're very committed to recovering uh, any any species that start looking like they're going to go out or become extinct or whatever. They set up whole programs to restore them. Uh, they've got parakeet, Cuban parakeet restoration, Cuban parrot, alligator. Um, it, it's it's quite inspiring, and um, I I'm not saying they have the solution. I know it's a very controversial country, but I do notice that people are expendable here, and the only thing that seems to matter is profits, and their sure. profits are secondary to people in the environment. So you have to wonder um, how we can somehow um, uh, make become more humane as a society and environmentally conscious and interested. And I, I don't know, maybe going after tons of money is an addiction. I've often thought maybe they've got they ought to have twelve step programs for these folks. Um, <laughs> So they can have a different value system. I mean, how many billions does anyone need? <laughs> you know, you know so, on the environmental well, changes and everything, you know, I talked about this, and we both taught classes on this. I mean, the environmental change, the impact of the environment doesn't just come from fossil fuels, but it comes from the pesticides, all the agrochemicals, all the industrial chemicals, yeah. organic compounds, all the stuff that's all deposited in the environment. Because I yep. think, you know, as you've taught before, and I learned from you, environmental chemistry is really complex, and it seems like people not only don't understand it, but what bothers me so much more is people don't want to understand or know what's happening, either medically, 
or chemically or physics from the physics part. How, how do we get through this, Ann? I'm not asking you well, to answer all the questions, but I'm raising the question for us to think about. Right. No, I think it's a very good question. And um, I, I would add to what you're saying about how, these, how industrial farming creates global warming, because if we did go to agroecological organic production of crops for the world, we could mitigate climate change by 30 to 40 percent. So, you know, the question becomes, why aren't we doing that? I mean, it only makes sense. People would be healthier. The environment would be healthier. We could move toward uh, uh, mitigating uh, global warming and then deal with, I mean, if we're going to have wars, how about wars on poverty? I saw some of the worst poverty I've ever been in in Oaxaca, and there's no excuse for, for the, ki- the kind of poverty that farm workers live in and their families in Mexico live in. No human should live like that. So I, I think that, you know, that this combination of poverty and then disposable humans, and I just I see soldiers and veterans as disposable as farm workers. Um, I was hearing a program on uh, women in the military and how some of them don't drink water after noon because they're afraid of getting up in the night, and uh, if they do, they might get raped. And so they die. A lot of them die of dehydration. I thought, what kind of a system is this? You know, or send them off and fight people that you've never even met before and kill their children. I mean, we need a new system. It's just not working. Well, Doug and I talk a lot about moral injury on this program. And what you said a minute ago, a few minutes ago, you said it was very immoral what has taken place. And we've discussed often, and I teach classes on morality in the military, or, you know, um, moral injury, but there are certain laws to that uh, morality, and it comes from the conscience. One of those laws is about loving life. It's not just loving your life, it's loving somebody else's life. And uh, I think we've come into a time in America and around the world to where someone said one time, social media has helped create a lot of sociopaths. It's where we lose our sensitivity to our conscience, and it's about making money or it's about doing other things. Or, you know, we can, uh, if, if someone treated their animal like a pet or a dog the way you're talking about, we would have them at their courts, we would put them in jail, we would, you know, <laughs> hang them probably in front of the circle. But, but we don't do that with human beings anymore. I think we've lost a lot of our conscience as a nation of, of treating each other like human beings. And it's for I the agree. money. Like, I agree. It's just gotten worse, um, you know, since this last election. I'm just appalled. In fact, um, you know, people are, uh, some people are, I hear them railing about the LGBT uh, issue or however it is. I'm, I'm, I don't fall into that category. But I think to myself, you know, the problem, the focus should not be on people that like each other. The focus needs to be on the hate. We need to resolve the hate, and that, uh, that is, I think, the source of so many issues. Um, the other thing, too, is that I see that we have an economy and a society based on competitive individualism. 
and there's too many people that uh, have the attitude, I'm going to get mine and forget the rest. And some of us don't do well with that. I don't do well with that. It, 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 I don't, my life is compromised knowing that there's the amount of suffering in the world today. If people had basic needs met and that, that I know, even the farm workers 14 miles from my house and the farmer, farmers, their farm families in Mexico, I would feel better. I mean, the quality of my life is compromised by their poverty and misery. And I, I think all of us have that. It's just some people somehow have managed, like you're saying, uh, no consciousness, have managed to override it with this quest and this intensity and aggression toward more and more and more money and consumer goods and everything else, mostly leaving them uh, uh, vacant inside. I mean, that's we're not we're not empty vessels that you have to fill up with consumer goods. I mean, each of us is a unique being with, I believe, gifts to give and contributions to make and uh, to forfeit that. Uh, the saying goes that most people realize what they should have done with their life uh, 10 minutes before they die, and they die in enormous regret. I, I think that's tragic. You know, another thing, too, when we look at and the things have changed in the educational system, I've gone to the store and recently, and I've gone in, we had to get some stuff. And the tellers, even though whatever's happened in the educational system, you'll see them bagging pesticides or cleaning compounds together with fresh food. I had a store manager here that tried to put raw bacon in with my fresh tomatoes for my BLTs the other day. And I'm sitting there going, we got something really wrong. And the other thing, too, is when I was growing up, and I think Ray did it, and you and I have talked about this before, is we had gardens and we grew our own crops. I mean, I grow my own stuff. I don't spray them with anything. I take them clean, we wash them, and we eat them. And the peaches uh-huh. we just harvested over the last couple of days taste incredibly good. They're small, but they're juicy. But there's nothing on them but, you know, God's rain. And the rain I put on, that came out of my deep 220-foot well. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, that's the the ideal, and it's, you know, to have that kind of connection to the land, I think, puts a person in in the consciousness of the the connection of all life and how it is all connected and how we need to preserve it. Uh, I think that if you, you know, if you live in a sky rise, uh, skyscraper or whatever in New York and never go outside or see soil, uh, you probably are completely detached from that system. Uh, I know that here, we, you know, 14 miles away from me, there is tremendous poverty, and I'm lucky enough to live in a redwood forest in a lovely home uh, and in, in Santa Cruz County. And the northern part of the county is almost all white, and the southern part is almost all Mexican, where the farm workers live. And if you go to the farmer's market, what people want is organic and non-genetically modified foods to buy. But very few people talk about the uh, labor aspect and what the people responsible for that food, how they live, 
and what their lives are like. That's not p- part of the equation. Which uh, for people me don't understand what organic means either. I mean, you see, start thinking, you'll see the label organic in the store, and they'll charge you an arm and a tooth, and you ask, well, what does that mean, and how are you growing it? And uh-huh. I'm not sure that it's a total understanding of true organic practices for agriculture versus what is being said or done. Well, how do we how do we true. get the education out? I know you've been trying to do this for twenty years or more. Yeah, well I I mean we have in California well you probably have USDA organic, don't you? I mean, USDA organic produce, you'll see the sticker on on the fruit or whatever you're buying. Do you have that out there? No, I'm not I'm not seeing that, but then I, you know, I grow most of my own stuff here, which is a little bit different. Oh, okay. Well, we have both that and we have California certified organic uh farmers. And so if you have both of those labels, on whatever food you're buying, then you can be really sure that the right practices are used. But I think that uh, California is probably unique in that sense. See, we've Um, we've got here in a lot of places, and we talked about drifting. You've mentioned drift before, and you would work a lot with pesticide drift. You can have a field, but the distance that the drift and the pesticides go is huge. We're not talking about going to the fence line we're not talking about going a few hundred feet. We're talking about tens of miles. And the other problem we have here, and, and different, we have so much water, we have irrigation to remove the water, not irrigation to add the water, irrigation to remove the water. So our uh, water that comes down and traverses from one area to another carries all this junk right into the creeks, the streams, and then gets all over the Wisconsin aquifer, which is our uh, water table for our fruits and vegetables. Oh, and at some point you probably have to drink it or run it through a filter, I would imagine. Well, yeah, the drinking water is safe, but then the other question is, and this goes into a thing too, what is the absorption of pesticides into the foods and how do we prepare or how do we use foods that might have been exposed to the pesticides? I mean, some obviously some things that are <laughs> we're in contact, we can peel them, but other stuff is going to be absorbed into the center of all this stuff. And how how do we know and what's safe and how do we get around that? Well, you don't because uh, I recall a study I read uh, several years ago where they uh, took, you know, they went into a market, got all conventional produce and fruit, and everything that was conventional had pesticides in it. I mean, not just on the outside so you could wash it off, but in, in the actual structure that somebody would eat, uh, one of the least, apparently the least problematic were bananas because they have that thick covering. But um, other than that, uh, there is no way. You have, to, you, ha- you have to buy organic and hope it wasn't grown next to a field that, uh, <laughs> where they used a lot of pesticide. I mean, ultimately, if we really want to resolve all of this, we have to get rid of these companies and these horrible chemicals. We must stop poisoning the earth and each other. I just, I don't care what kind of profits people make. I think it's immoral and disgraceful, and we can do so much better. 
Aren't we seeing drift now and spread of pharmaceuticals because we're getting pharmaceuticals being through the waste and the toilet or wherever they're throwing them gets into our water table, and we're seeing problems there. And then that also gets into the disease problems where people have misused all their meds, and now we're seeing genetically modified bacteria and viruses and everything else that we ain't got a chance in heck of curing. I mean, this is all together, isn't it? I recall. And I will I tell you, uh, my wife recently, because she buys a lot of uh, vegetables here and there when we travel and stuff, and she always stops at these local um, homegrown markets, you know, little markets. And at last two she stopped at across North Carolina, uh, she asked the workers there, is this locally grown? And they both of them told her, no, we bring it in from other places. And so you think you're, you're buying locally grown or organic, but you're not really buying that sometimes. And that reminded me of a sign I saw one time, that uh, uh, antique thing, and it said, uh, if we don't have the antique you want, we'll make it for you. And it, so you think you're buying something local, but it may not be local. So how do we, do you just wash it and wash it and hope the best, or what do you do? Well, I mean, I I really go to great effort and expense to buy as much organic as I can. The only time I don't eat organic is if I go out to dinner because I don't know what the salad they're giving me or the vegetables or whatever. Uh, I don't know where it came from. But in terms of my own shopping, I always make sure it's organic. And in our farmers markets out here, they have uh, signs out that say USDA organic or CCOF um, certified, <clears throat> and then you know that it, it's as organic as you're going to get. So I always head for those stalls and buy whatever it is there, or I just don't eat it. I just, I'm just, I'll change my diet. I'm not I refuse to support these companies. I just think they're unethical and immoral and how they can be called and ascribe personhood uh, legally and do the things they do murdering people is just an atrocity. And the uh, head of Californians for Pesticide Reform explained to me that they have all of the privileges of personhood legally, but none of the liabilities. Well, you know, I mean, the whole thing is kind of, you're dedicated. I mean, you've got your grandkids, and that you're trying to teach and educate. Yes. And they're wonderful. Like, we got, I've got mine, and Ray's got his grandkids. What What's the hope for the future? Do you think we can get the education to get people to adopt proper practices, whether it's themselves or the, you know, just a family farmer? Because a family farmer's on on you know the pinch too to get as much as he can produce with whatever he has at the minimal expenses for the minimal maximum profit, and somehow this whole balance gets out of whack, doesn't it? Totally, um, and that I think that's changing because, like I said, I pay a lot of money for. Unfortunately, I have money to buy good food. Uh, the farm workers don't. But fortunately, I do, and I think that more and more people are going in that direction. And the, the proof of that in my area is this. I remember 35 years ago when there was a tiny stand selling organic, a few organic things 
in San Jose. There was nothing in Santa Cruz. And then uh, I think it was Whole Foods or some rendition came in. And then in Santa Cruz now we've got Staff of Life, several New Leaf markets, and Whole Foods. And now even Safeway is, has, they, they claim they have organic food in every aisle. So obviously the public demand for it is growing and uh, they're, they're uh, answering supply and demand. And so I think that I am, I am very inspired by the resistance that I see uh, at least happening in California. California is not going along with no no uh, action on global climate, et cetera. In fact, uh, Governor Brown now is uh, working to sign a bill on the cap-and-trade situation, which has its problems, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Is that Moonbeam? Uh, is he back as governor now? Yeah. he's he's And he's he's come out very forcefully about the new administration and how we're not going back, which I was so heartened by because people in California are really depressed with what's happened in Washington, I'll tell you. <laughs> hey, Anne, could you talk about your book a little bit about it? You could, we have a few more minutes. Talk about your book, how people can get it, what's about, and what they can learn from it, please. Well, I uh, studied for my Ph.D. the impact of the North American Free Trade Agreement on the farms in Mexico. Um, Mexico uh, had a a completely sustainable system of farming that supported millions, literally millions and millions, of small producer and subsistence farmers for, we think, between 7,000 and 9,000 years. And then the North American Free Trade Agreement came along, and The reason it's called free trade is because uh, people in corn-growing regions like the United States, we now grow the most corn of anybody in the world, we wanted to get our corn into Mexico, but they had such strict tariffs at the border that it, it wasn't profitable. So by getting rid of the border tariffs, then we could send our hybrid and GMO corn into Mexico. And literally, we dumped tons and tons and tons of this stuff uh, into Mexico, and it undercut the price that these small producer farmers got for their very healthy, uh, it's called maíz criollo, or um, uh, native corn that they grew and hand-selected for all of those thousands of years. So Mexico has a strain, a genetic strain of corn for every single environment, and the environments are as variable as you can imagine. In fact, Mexico at one time was the repository of corn genetics for the world. Uh, if, you, if you had corn in your country and it wasn't doing well, you went to Mexico and found a strain that was doing well and crossed it with yours, and that usually solved the problem. We did it in uh, in the South during the... 70s during the southern uh, blight, southern corn blight. So what happened then is now these farmers have no way to make a living in Mexico, and so they because the the, the price of their corn is not, it, it's not worth anything anymore. 
So they have three choices. They can stay on their farms and starve with their families. And I met farmers who decided to do that. They're so attached to their land that they don't want to leave it, even if they have to die. So, I mean, it's tragic that that happened. And then another option is to go to a big city like Mexico City or Guadalajara and uh, try to find work. And if you go to Mexico City today, it's one of the biggest cities in the world. I think they have 21, 22 million people, and it's ringed by shanty towns of these displaced farmers. And then the last choice is to head for the United States in an undocumented border crossing. And that's why California has at least, we, we estimate, 75% undocumented farm workers which has been a boon for the growers here because they don't have to worry about organizing. All they have to do is threaten blacklisting if anybody complains. So they have absolutely no, the farm workers have absolutely no rights. So my book is called The Farm Worker's Journey, and I discuss all the steps involved and also point out how this whole process is a violation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Several of the articles are violated by NAFTA, and um, um, which we, the United States, signed on to in 1948. So we we're not we have not kept our agreements. Uh, you know, if you don't keep your agreements, nothing's going to work. How did they get a copy of your book, Ann? Uh, you can go to U- University of California Press, and I think it's on Amazon. Uh, it's, not, it's not hard to find. Or you can just uh, type in um, The Farm Worker's Journey by Ann Lopez, Dr. Ann Lopez, and I'm sure it'll come up. How does all this stuff to play? I mean, I think I remember your other half, you're, you're Irish. The Irish potato famine back in the 1800s, how does this all come into play and all the migration from that time and what we're seeing today out of Mexico? Is there any relationships? Um, Well, I mean, I think the – I don't offhand have a clear – very – a real clear view of that famine, but I think a lot of it happened as a result, again – of monocultures and not planting diverse cropping so that whatever uh, fungus or whatever went through the potatoes uh, destroyed the crop and forced people to migrate. Uh, In this case in Mexico, it's different because people have been displaced by a trade agreement that I think is unethical. Uh, The people who constructed that trade agreement never consulted any of these uh, small producer or um, subsistence farmers. And what, what, from what I've seen studying it for the last 20 years, it has been a human rights disaster. I mean, I, the suffering caused by that, and you never see it in the media. It's just amazing to me that you can have this, outflow of human beings and the destruction of these all these villages and people left behind. In fact, I think a lot of the cartels that are so rampant now in Mexico are, are possibly caused by all of these boys 
that grew up without fathers because the fathers were driven off the land and had to come here to send money back to the family. And um, you, so these boys never had a father figure, and they see somebody. I remember hearing about a 13-year-old where uh, the head of a cartel gave him a gun and a thousand dollars and told him to kill someone. And when they uh, arrested him, they asked him about it, and he said, "Well, I, you know, I just wanted to be a, with this older man." Um, it's, you know, there needs to be a study of of what removing all the fathers, because the fathers were the ones that took the, the sons out to the milpa, the, the cornfields, and t- not only taught them the sustainable farming, but also uh, imparted the values of the culture and the, the um, region and the village and so on, and that formed the community. But these communities have basically been destroyed, and in Kukio. I never saw cancer until the last three years, and now the children are getting cancer. Uh, one that I visited who, who got bone cancer has since died. Uh, there's one, another one I visited that has a, a cancer in her eye, and so now the agrochemicals are, are having their impact. Seems like a never-ending cycle in education and information. But the other thing too that bothers me, I see so many people that don't want to get involved. They don't want to make get a decision, as we're trying to do here. What we do all the time, and what you've been doing since I met you, is shedding light on the problem. Because once you start shedding light on the problem, people have to take action. And well, as we all know from all our work, the congressional representatives and all the way up to the president, for multiple presidents sure don't want to take the responsibility to help. That's I don't right. know how to get through that. To me, it's frustrating and a half. Well, I think it's, it requires mobilization. I think, it, uh, I think we're, uh, at least in California, uh, ripe for moving toward a revolution, and I just hope it's not a bloody one. I mean, people are really angry about the status quo. <clears throat> these days and and what this government is about and uh you know it's uh, well you know yourself watching the news it's embarrassing it's embarrassing to be a part of a country that's so great uh with the kind of leadership we're seeing and uh i think that it's education and everybody I think everybody has a responsibility i do farm worker reality tours where I take groups of interested people and I have them go to Watsonville with me and spend an afternoon and listen to the stories from farm workers that I've been hearing. And all kinds of wonderful things are coming out of that. In fact, in Santa Cruz County on September 10th, they've declared it as Farm Worker Family Day. Isn't that fabulous? Yeah, you could be happy with that for sure. What about, yeah. uh, we got another study here, and we're running out of time. We can go on and on and on. Agricultural use in public schools or near public schools. I mean, oh, there was a massive well, study out in California, a health tracking program. We see it here in Illinois. Yeah, well, we want a one-mile buffer zone and a week's notice of fumig- fumigation. 
and we have been in a war with the Department of Pesticide Regulation that doesn't regulate pesticides um, about this because they only want to give us a quarter of a mile, which is nothing. A quarter of a mile is irrelevant. We're talking about tens and twenties, you know, dozens of miles, 10, 20, 30, 40 miles. I mean, as we know, the environmental contamination from military operations doesn't stop at a fence line. And if we got yeah, agricultural well, exactly. society, it's going to do the same thing. Well, that's, and uh, you know, the question, I was on a panel in Sacramento just a few days ago, and the question I always end up with when I start getting all the resistance about this law and this legal thing and all of that, I just ask the question, why don't these children matter? And, I, I, you know, I think that's the question. Why don't our children matter? My grandchildren matter. I want everybody's children to matter. Right. I mean, I mean, you run out of generations if you don't do something. Uh, well, exactly. So what are we going to end up with? Brain damaged, autistic, uh, uh, mentally retarded uh, people who can't think as the next generation. I mean, it's so short-sighted. Profits in the short term and forget the long-term consequences. We can't live this way. Uh, the, 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 uh, what is it? The uh, National Wildlife Association estimates that we've lost one half of all the wild animals on this planet since 1970. What can we be thinking? Well, you know, we, the other we, thing, too, is uh, the thing they want to get rid of all the landline telephones and go to the cell phones. And as we've had the expert from Karolinska Institute on here, we now know the radiation from a cell phone, like in a microphone, the danger level is 0.2 milliwatts per square centimeter. But everybody wants all these conveniences, and they want to disregard the health and environmental effects of all these technological conveniences. Yep, you're right. I I agree, and I have a cell phone. I, I don't, I mean, I have to have a cell phone to call people and when I get to Watsonville and do, do the kind of things, but I'm, I'm aware of that. I've heard, and I just, you know, I don't know if there's any way to insulate oneself totally. I do, as an anecdote, when I was in Cuba, I noticed that when I, when I went around the block in the, um, in the bus as we were leaving this beautiful place called Vinales, uh, there were people out, tons of people out on the street about 5 o'clock. Everybody's talking, socializing, having a good time, you know, that lived in the houses in that neighborhood. And I thought, I'm going to count how many people are looking at self. There, there was oh, we're out of time, Dr. Professor Ann Lopez. Director, farm workers, thank you very much. God bless you, Ray. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, a call to action from an expert in the nation. Good evening and take care. Thank you, Ann.